Turn in your Bibles with me again, once again to Hebrews 12. I thank you, each one of you, for all your prayers uh, for my family this week. Lucy is doing well. All the rest is really helping. And um, we thank you for all the meals. We've really been blessed by all the meals and the care uh, that you've shown for our family. You can continue to pray for us. We normally come at 37, 37 and a half weeks, and tomorrow is 37 weeks. Um, so we're looking forward to that time. We continue to pray for that. Hebrews 12, we're engaged, as I said earlier, in a three-part series on church government, specifically church discipline over the last couple of weeks. This would be the third and last installment in that series. Three weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 18. Mr. Welch took us to that scripture, and we saw the instructions given in order to combat sin privately and corporately. And we're very grateful that God has not left us in the dark on issues of how to deal with sin. Matthew 18 may be one of the most step-by-step instructional verses in the entire Bible. And uh, probably a pattern we wish that many other verses followed where you literally have step one do this and then step two do that, step three do that, and so on and so forth. And then last week Paul Renfro uh, preached from 1 Corinthians 5 as his text and gave an excellent report on the need for church discipline and the cancer of sin that is within the church and if there's not that fight against it, it will destroy a church from the inside out. It would be very helpful if I just preached both of those messages again because they were uh, very, very important in the foundational understanding of church government. But for the sake of time, and I've been requested to preach Hebrews 12, I'm going to just refer you there to the church website to re, to uh, re-listen to those, and I would encourage you to listen to this one again as well. This is a very important uh, study of a particular doctrine in Scripture that's very important in our day and age, and we need to get this right. I think the elders in our church have been very wise in taking us through this three-part series. We have a world that preaches tolerance, 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 lower everyone to the Lowest, bring everyone down to the lowest common denominator, degrade others, and I think it'd be very foolish to deduce that that worldview is checked at those wooden doors and it doesn't enter into the church. It does. It's a thought process where we go out for six days and then we come in for one day in here, and out in those six days we're told, don't be intentional about anything, don't seek excellence, love everybody no matter if they're wrong or right. I mean, it's a tolerant world we live in. And so when we hear something preached like this on church discipline, it kind of grates against our, the, the worldview that we're bombarded with all the time. So it's very important that the church, as Max said earlier in worship, are in, in the singing in our worship service is to the church has got to uphold truth as the standard or we're, we're very much lost a definition was given by Bob on church discipline three weeks ago and I want to reiterate that it is this it is the church discipline is the confrontative and corrective measures taken by an individual notice that normally we think of it as just church leaders by an individual church leaders or the congregation regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer. And let me, for sake of point, read that one more time. Biblical church, biblical church discipline is the confrontative and corrective measures taken by an individual, church leaders, or the congregation regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer. Now we go to Hebrews 12, and I'm going to read once again verse 1 through 17. And I have four points to this message. But before I get to those four points, I need to spend four pages of my notes getting us in the right frame of mind. So my introduction is two-thirds of this sermon. But if I don't do it, then we're gonna, we won't have the doctrinal understanding we need to be refreshed on to approach Hebrews 12 
1 through 17. So let me, let me read this. And I ask, you, ask that you would stand once again to honor the reading of God's word as I read through this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Follow along with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And let me make a quick note here as you're reading. If you write in your Bible, you could write Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, because this is what is quoted here in Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it become many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Please join me as we pray. Father, we once again come before you, and I would plead that this poor, lisping, stammering tongue might sing your power. And that is outside of my abilities. So I'm praying, Father, that you would speak clearly through me, your word, and strike deep the heart. And Lord, we know that you can, you can, you can divide something that's seemingly undividable, the joints in the marrow, and yet you can slip that word of truth right where it needs to be. And I pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So specifically my goal this morning and desire would be to take Hebrews 12 as a base and to view the similarities between the building block of society, which would be the family, the structural family, the family that's sitting in the pew next to you, and the church family or the body of Christ. And thankfully in scripture that these similarities are not just obvious, but they're actually a picture of one another. The physical social family is created and ordered by God to mirror, although it's not going to be perfect, the spiritual relationship we have, we are to have with God, the Father, and the church. And let me just make note there that in a society here in the western side of the world where the church of America is very weak and we have a low view of the church, we oftentimes view the, the social family as more important than the church. And that's not the way scripture puts it. The church is of far greater importance than the social family. And if we get that right, we can have very, very strong families because we have something to mirror if we don't do that right, we're simply trying to mirror a divorced couple. God the Father over here, and we've removed Mother, the church, from her correct place and moved her over here, and we're supposed to somehow view this and get this right. And it, it, we have a very broken view of the church. We know this because of Luke 14. And this would be this passage of not looking back if any man loves his, does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and 
you all know the passage. He does not love me. And certainly not talking about hate. We're talking about comparative love. We should love the church. We should love the bride of Christ. We should love God far more in comparison than anyone else around us. We know that this is not a new thought. Uh, All the way back, 3rd century A.D., Cyprian of Carthage wrote a common quote, which you've probably heard before, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. John Calvin picked up on that thought, and the subtitle of chapter 1, book 4 of his Institutes of Christian Religion is entitled, The True Church with Which as Mother of All the Godly We Must Keep Unity. He followed that with another quote in his commentary on Ephesians, in which he said, The church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears, nourishes, and governs in the church, both kings and commoners, and this is done by the ministry. Those who neglect or despise this order want to be wiser than Christ. Woe to their pride. Let me say that once again. The church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears, nourishes, and governs in the Lord, both kings and commoners, and this is done by the ministry. Those who neglect or despise this order want to be wiser than Christ. Woe to their pride. My introduction this morning is is simply to help remind us of the doctrine of the church. Because if we have, a, if we have an improper view of the church, it's going to be difficult to have, an improper, to have a proper view of the family, which we know we put a strong emphasis on in this church, and certainly going to have a very, we're have a very difficult time having a proper view of church government, and specifically church discipline. A few passages of scripture here. We have Ephesians three fourteen through 15. Noting that we have a family relationship mirrored here. For this reason I bow my knees before the, we call him Father or Abba Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we, we have this uh, picture here in scripture of a family, the family of God. Second Corinthians six sixteen through 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and note here the family concept, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then we certainly see the picture of the church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, 23-25, and verse 32 of that same passage. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, his, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And verse 32 in Ephesians 5 says... This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And we have that in our minds. But stop and think of the place that a wife should take in a biblical marriage. She is upheld very, very high. She is esteemed by the husband. She is loved. She is cared for. She is nurtured. She is washed. The wife of Christ, the bride, is held held in very, very high value in his eyes. So when you pile in the car on Sunday morning to go to church, this is not like you're going to a soccer game. This is not a flippant manner in which you walk through two doors. This is, a, this is a holy endeavor to go to be with the bride who is upheld very highly in the husband's eyes. As the bride that also has her role in the church as mother, we're called to honor and respect and obey our mothers and fathers. And sometimes... Oftentimes we lose sight of the role the church should play as a mother. If God is our father, must be very careful there. 
We value highly the role and calling of mothers in this church. We do so for many reasons, but one namely is because Christ, God the Father, has placed a high and lofty role for his bride. We can think of the great hymn of the faith. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. An obscure verse that you may not have heard continues. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. We have in the social family, we have the father and the mother and the children. And in the spiritual family, we would have God, the church, and the sheep. Now, what we are talking about today, as far as the church, is the visible church. And we must make note that the true church is the invisible church. I can view you visibly. I cannot view your soul. There may be those within here that do not know Christ. I do not know that. God the Father does. So the true church is invisible. We cannot see it. We're talking today the visible church, that which we can see, those that are in the pew with you. The sheep, God, the church, and then the sheep. The, tre- the sheep would be the true church, the invisible church. Let me note here, just as a, in passing, that if God holds his bride to such high esteem, This does not give us leeway to view the church as optional. We cannot view the church as optional. And sometimes we do this. Or we view it, we view the church as having, as if there's an alternative to the church. Um, Disciplines of a Godly Man is is an excellent book. I recommend it. But, in this book, he has a passage or a chapter on the church. And one of the things he says, and I would just read, is men on the most elementary level, you do not have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go to home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you will have a very poor relationship. And that's how we sometimes approach the church. It's optional. How do we feel this morning? Oh, you know, I'm a little tired. We spent late last night. We're fellowshiping the body of Christ at this great party. I'm a little tired. I think we're going to skip out on church this morning. Well, I'm not saying there's not time for the ox to be in the ditch or sickness. or, But if, we, if we're going to have a biblical view of the church, I, I would find it interesting if the Lord was to say when, when he comes back, you were tired and you didn't want to go with me with my bride. Really? You're tired? It's supposed to be a day of rest. This is one of the places you're to go to gain rest for your soul. I mean, it's very careful very careful to not view the church as optional. And I think if we were to uh, step into the war room, as it were, of the enemy, and we were to view things they were discussing in terms of, hey, how are we going to lay waste to this church? What are we going to do? How are we going to distract them? Get them out of here. We don't want the people in those pews. How do we get them out? Well, here's one of the things I think they would say to do. Let us create an alternative that is so rich and wonderful, but it's outside of the fellowship, outside of here. So what we're going to do, we're going to have this thing called the internet created. And on it, we're going to put wonderful teaching like Ligonier Ministries or Truth for Life by Alistair Begg or John Piper or R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul Jr. or John MacArthur and the list can go on and on. How about we create how about we create some conferences? Let's put together something called the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. How about NICFIC, National Coalition of Family Integrated Churches? How about we do something called homeschool conventions? That will get them. Wonderful conferences. And what we'll do is get them so absorbed in those wonderful things as an alternative to the church, that they'll go there and they'll never come underneath the doors, but maybe once or twice a month. 
Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to conferences. I'm not saying any of those men that preach are not extraordinary men of God. I'm not saying that it is wrong to go to a homeschool conference or any of these things at all. What I'm saying is we can never view those things as an alternative to the church. And we've got to be very careful that we don't. Because church, if it's held to such a high esteem as God puts his bride, it's certainly not optional And there are certainly no alternatives to that. When I was growing up, I played soccer. And my family, if you know anything about them, six boys, one girl, and we defined, if you look up in Webster's competition, there's a picture of six boys, and they got blood on them. (laughs) That was our family. And we we are highly competitive. You can't play a board game without, it's nuts. So, growing up, I played soccer. And if you're going to play soccer, and, and, or you can play any sport in my family, it's just inbred in us. You, you, you go for it. You, it's not just, you don't just walk on the field. You practice at home for hours. And I remember having just bruises and thighs that were red for hours, trying to learn how to juggle a soccer ball until I got it down. So, when I played soccer... We moved quickly up the ranks, and soon we were playing something called competitive select. And what that means is you're selected for a competitive team, and you travel around the state, and you play games, and it's all-consuming to a family. But if there's one thing, there's so many things I can look back at my family and say, ma'am, I wish I could be as good as my dad was in this area. If there's one thing, it was very clear. Church is on Sunday morning, and you will be there. And I don't care if it is a state championship, which I missed a couple times, to play in. You will be in church. That's where we're at. You can play soccer all you like, but church is of very high importance. So when I grew up, hey, there, there, wasn't, there was no alternatives or options. We went to church. Did we do it all right? No. But I got a really strong understanding of what this means and I only knew we went there and but as I grew in my faith obviously I began to understand the importance of being there and the close fellowship that comes no alternatives side point we continue to see in scripture the family of God depicted first Timothy 5 1 through 2 do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers and older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity God has designed the social family to have order because the spiritual family has order God is a God of order and there is order in all that he does sin entered the world because the order of God was violated sin always arises when biblical order is not followed there is order in all things. God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Notice the context of 1 Corinthians 14. If you read that passage, it's in the context of church worship. And he's talking about what happens in church worship. The order and the structure that should happen there. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Ending that portion in 1 Corinthians 14. But all things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because God has determined it would be that way. And I I point that out because there is father, mother, children. There is God, the bride, and his sheep. And that is a very specific, ordered manner by which God has set forth for his children. All creation is in order. This is why discipline, the physical waking up in the morning, working your body out, memorizing scripture, you know, watching your diet, the, all these things that we do are very important because that's the God of order that we have. And scripture is replete with text after text of scriptural instruction of how to remain in order. For instance, Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything. Here's the order, but in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Notice the order, right down the line. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God is a God of order. He wants it done in a certain way. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. How did we, why, why, why would God judge that if he was not a God of order? If he did not say things happen in marriage that should happen and things shouldn't happen outside of marriage that should only happen in marriage and if you do, I'm going to judge you. Why? He's a God of order. 
God is a God of order. Why is it that some understand and respect the roles of social order and yet on Sunday morning reject the roles and responsibilities of church order? And we are certainly suffering mightily in this nation because of it. You can drive by. No need to stop. You don't need to stop. Just go by your local park and park or just drive by and watch the children. You can see that the social family is struggling mightily. Children are unruly, disobedient, disrespectful. Mom is wearing the pants of the family. Feminism rules. Dad is relegated to the butt of all the jokes in the family and is widely concerned, widely cons- considered out of touch, old-fashioned, and good for only making babies and maybe bringing home some bread money. That's how dad is relegated in this culture. We're suffering mightily in the church because we have lost the biblical understanding of what the, what the family should be and where our families are struggling because the church has weakened. It's a circle because they're a picture of one another. So, what are we to do to restore this order? To bring about a righting of the mess, of the sinking of the ship of this church, of not this church, but the church of America and keep this church from sinking. Before we get into discipline, I have four points on discipline. Let me just make one final note and say that God deals very seriously, very, very seriously with violations of order and roles in the family and therefore in the church as well. Very seriously. If you were a young person in biblical times and you dishonored your father and mother, we know what would happen. You'd be stoned to death. He is very concerned that roles are followed and order is maintained. And he will deal with it accordingly. When we violate the roles and seek to rebel against the church, maybe not in sin, but maybe just seeking an alternative, seeking an alternative then we should expect God to deal accordingly with us. And we have certainly gone for alternatives in the Western church. Four points on discipline. We're finding these in Hebrews 12. There's my four pages of introduction. If the church is so important and it has such a, such a, its role, the social family is to mirror that. Then we can find much in the way of church government in this Hebrews 12 passage. And I don't think we have to look very hard to see it. First point is found in verse 4. Hebrews 12 verse 4. In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. That's point number one. Discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. Sin is to be fought in an ordered framework. And you can find this in Ephesians 4 and other passages of how to fight sin, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are to look to Christ as our example. You see that in Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 4. He's just shown what Christ has done for us. And now we're to look for him as that example. So there's an ordered framework. We're to submit to authorities. We're to follow the rules. And we should never look at discipline, either disciplining ourselves for godliness or receiving discipline, which we'll talk about the difference between those in just a moment. We should never look at those as a thing to be despised or rejected, as if God is sitting there going, how can I make things just miserable for those people? So I'll, I know I'll give them discipline and they'll hate it. No, he's sitting there going, I love them. This is best to deal with them. This is the best way to deal with them is in discipline. If they will learn to do this, this will be very good for them. We normally think of these type of things as something, oh man, this is hard. No, you've got to think of it as, this is good and what you should be doing. And if you do it, it makes things easier in this fight against sin. Because discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. If you are a disciplined person, in mind, body, and soul. The fight against sin will never completely go away, but it will be greatly minimized. Eric Little famously said, if you discipline yourself in one area of your life, eventually you'll discipline yourself in every area of life. And 
contrast that. If you don't discipline yourself in one area of your life, you'll eventually be undisciplined in every area of your life. It's very important to be disciplined. Discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. We are to discipline ourselves. And if we are unable to do so, as children, if we are unable to discipline ourselves and we start talking back because we're not controlling our tongue, we're talking back to mom and dad, or we're disobeying and hitting somebody, or we're doing something we shouldn't do, what happens? Mom has to step in and say, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not what we're supposed to do. Here's the standard we're to hold to, Scripture, and she disciplines us accordingly to hold us to where we should be. Just the same way in the church. We're, getting, we're to discipline ourselves. If you can't discipline yourself and you end up in sin and you're unrepentant from that sin, note that very carefully, unrepentant sin, what's to happen? The, the mother, the church, is supposed to step in and say, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh, no. This is the sinner. Come back here and to do what is necessary to restore a brother or sister of Christ. Discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. Point number two, which is found in verse eight. Discipline is commanded and expected in the family. Discipline is commanded and expected in the family. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And I think we could say as the church, if you leave off discipline, in which all have participated, you are not fulfilling the instructions given to you and are illegitimate. The church is, the true church, if you want to know what a true church is, you would have biblical preaching, the administering of the sacraments, and church discipline. You have to have those things or you're not a true church. According to scripture, biblical preaching, the administering of the sacraments, and church discipline. The faithful exercise of church discipline. So, discipline is commanded and expected in the social family, and if the church of God does not do so, do so, then they are illegitimate. They're not a real church. It's required. Go with me to Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. We're talking here that obviously we, we understand what's going on in Ephesians 6. We're discussing the roles um, of employer, employee, children to parent roles, parent to children roles. We see this in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is commanded by God and expected in the family. Now, let's talk a little bit about this discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because this is what is supposed to happen within a family. Parents, you're supposed to do this with your children. Notice the responsibility is with the father to do this. Certainly mom helps, but fathers, you're primarily responsible to not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is the difference between those two words? Well, let me show you quickly here, running through. We have discipline and we have instruction. And in the Greek, discipline is peadeia. And I'm going to say that really wrong, but you're going to believe that it's the right way to say it. That would be discipline. And it would be the kind of the external side of training. Let me read a few things that it goes along with. You would be trained by act. Son, we pick up our clothes and we put them in the laundry basket. That would be this word. You are training them the, the how to do things. You set the fork on the left side of the plate. Follow? This would be the how of doing things. This would be the structure, the rules, regulations, rewards, punishments. This would be the actions. Some we don't have that bad attitude. We have an attitude that's honoring to the Lord. This would be your behavior. You can't just throw a fit on the middle of the floor. We don't do those things. That would be discipline. Habits. Expecting commandment, the commandments to be obeyed. If Son, if I say something, I expect you to do it. That would be this word discipline. It would be the rod and communication. Son, you know, because I've told you how many times, we don't 
dishonor your mother. We don't talk back to her, so I have to spank you. Pop, let's get the spanking. Now let's communicate. Why, why do we do this? Well, we, I have to show you, I have to spank you because of Ephesians 12, and I love you, and you need to understand that you have a heart full of sin, and you have a Savior, Jesus Christ, and you need to come to him, and you walk them through the gospel. This is what this word discipline is. But you would start with the rod, and then you're communicating. This is that word discipline. It's very much on the outside. But then you have discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nuthesia. Nous, which means mind. Thesia, which means laying down to put, meaning you're laying down a statement in your mind. That's why you would get, where you would get that word, nuthetic counseling. It's more on the inward. You would train by the word. So you're not just doing, teaching your son how to do it. You are giving them instruction and they're going and doing it. There's less of uh, example given. This is what you would be saying to the child rather than what you're doing to the child. This is the why, not just the how. This would be not just expecting them to do it because there's rules and regulations. You're expecting them to do it because there's there's internal inspiration. There's internal motivation to do this. And obviously this this is the desire of us as parents, right? We don't want to just say, don't do that. We want you to be able to go, I don't want to do that because Christ died for my sins and that's wrong. You get the, You see this? Nuthesia? This would be the motivations, the attitude, the heart to love God, to love others. This would be the communication and then the rod rather than the rod and communication. They're two very different words. And we're supposed to do this within the home. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is commanded and expected in the family. And this is what happens when you come to church. Now, what we are striving for as leaders and elders and pastors in this church is the Nuthesia side. To help you train your mind. To have the internal motivation to do what you're supposed to do. And our hope and prayer is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And you conform yourself to the image of His Son. And you discipline yourself for holiness. And you strive for peace with all. You're doing this on your own volition. But if you don't do that and you end up in sin and that sin becomes unrepentant sin, that doesn't mean we just go hands off and go, we've got a rebellious sheep. Let's let him run amok and just tear the whole house up. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll fix him. No, we don't do that in the home, do we? Son, fix it or out. We discipline them. We we say, "Uh uh-uh. If you're going to do that, here's some rules and regulations. I'm hoping you get the internal side, but if you're not, we can deal with this other ways. Well, that's exactly what happens in the church. Okay, so you don't want to do this by yourself, and you're in unrepentant sin, and you won't come to the Lord. There are, there's an order by which we deal with this. Discipline is commanded and expected in the social family, and it carries into the spiritual family. And I'd make a side note to that, that children... Physical children, hear me. Your parents are on your side. They're voting for you all the way through. Come on, you can make it. They're your greatest cheerleader. I want you to succeed. And I love you enough to do what I need to do to get you there. And that would be the same as the church. We're, we're here for We're cheering you on. But we also love enough to follow Scripture. The consequences and pain of sin by an individual are never isolated to just that individual. You can see that within the social family and you can certainly see that within the spiritual family. Third point. Point number one was discipline is instituted by God as a weapon. Point number two is discipline is commanded and expected in the family. Point number three is found in verse 9 and verse 11. Proper discipline bears fruit. Proper discipline bears fruit. We're back in Hebrews 12. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The key word there would be but later. We don't know how long it will take. But their biblical discipline done in a God-honoring way yields fruit. And it may just yield the fruit of respect. 
My brother is two years younger than me and I love him to death and he loves the Lord. But there was a time early on in his life, he was that one in the family where he just wanted to test everything and so he did. But you know, my father held very strongly to this is what we do in this family and what we don't do. And he, Cade, if nothing else, developed a very strong respect for my father. To the point that that was one of the things God used to bring him later on in life to understand to the point of going back to my, the rest of my younger brothers who are much younger and saying, listen to them. They know what they're talking about. That discipline brought about respect. It yields fruit. Young men, listen to this. There is often times when you cannot respect your father and mother. There is a portion of you that God has created that desires for you to respect someone. And I can't tell you how often I've heard of young men who are struggling with authority and disrespect. And you know what they say? I want to go to the, finish it, military. Frying pan into the fire, bro. There's a portion of you that's created to respect, ultimately God. And you're to do that with your father and mother. And if you can't, it's interesting that you're going to go to a place that demands respect. Proper discipline bears fruit. Proper discipline bears fruit. We don't know how long it will take, but we were required to exercise proper discipline, biblical discipline, and we can expect, according to God's promises, that there will be fruit. Point number four, found in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Point number four is discipline hurts. Paul noted this last week. Discipline is painful. It is not easy. And it affects others as well. But it is necessary. Now in closing, let me, let me leave on a high note an encouragement here of why we do this. And it begins with verse 12 of Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, that's always an important word in Scripture. Look back, what have we been talking about? In light of my exhortation on discipline, would be the writer of Hebrews saying, Therefore, in light of what I'm saying, be encouraged to discipline yourself. Be encouraged to lay aside every weight. Find that in Hebrews 12.1. And sin which clings so closely. Be encouraged to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God first. Very interesting here. Strive for peace with everyone. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What do you mean? I thought grace was free. It's a free gift. Grace is. But in that interesting paradox that's often in Scripture between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, there is this aspect of it of future grace that is less than it could be because you're outside of God's and yet it's full in its completeness. It's, and it's a very difficult paradox of which we don't have time to go into today. But understand that, that in, in, there's, a, there's a, a part of this that is dependent upon your actions. Not for saving faith, of course. We know this. But you, you, he's walking through a list here in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 of, of things that should be done. Watch out for bitterness. Watch out for immorality. Watch out for unholy living. And notice that these things are written in the plural. With everyone, no one will see. No one fails. Many become. No one is sexual. No one is sexually immoral. The, the whole purpose of this is, is instruction to a broader audience. We know this because of Hebrews 11. We just came through the hall of faith and now we're instructing as a group here what should be the order of God and how to deal with these things. It is our responsibility to place ourselves within the order of God's framework that would allow us to be in relationship, right relationship with others, 
to help keep them out of sin and running the race well, found in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, as was spoken of two weeks ago and last week. Those are proper orders to follow to help run the race well. So why do we exercise discipline in the social family or in the spiritual? And it's very, very simple. It's in order that you may lay, lay aside every weight and run the race well. And run the race well. To finish well. This is the point. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You're in the race and we want you to finish it. And children, your parents want you to finish it. And you've just begun and you're just in the first couple miles and it's a marathon. It's going to take a long time. But what is of more importance to finish the race or to have a little fun and drop out along the way? And No, we want you to finish the race well. You get disqualified if you jump off course and try to take a shortcut. Do it your own way. You've got to finish and run the race well. And that's why there's discipline. And that's why it's hard and, and not easy. And yet, 11, 1 Corinthians, I mean, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it, it has a purpose. It's so that you can run very, very well. And if, 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 we, if we shirk from that, Oh, I don't, I don't like this. I don't want the church to be of such an important role as mother in my life. Don't want this at all. If you're shirking, if we're shirking, if I'm shirking from the order God has placed before us, then really what I'm saying is, I have a bad taste in my mouth. There's a sign in my mouth that I have a lack of gospel understanding. I really don't clearly understand what Christ has done for me. I really clearly don't understand the, the order he's placed because of what he's done for me to keep me in that race and running it very, very well. We're to, we're to love this. You're to love it privately. And if you love it privately and you do it according to scripture and you're accountable with other people, it's very rare that these things ever go corporate. But if it does... This is why we have exhorted you and spoken from the scriptures these past three weeks on if it does, here's what to expect. And it's countercultural and it's not going to look fun because it's painful for everyone, but there's a purpose because it's done that we might run the race, that this person who's proclaiming to be a Christian might finish the race well. We do this in love. It's not something we wake up in the morning wanting to do, but it is done because it is within the order, within the framework that God has set forth. Parents, I would just encourage you, give your children a healthy respect for the church. A very healthy respect. In a day and age when, when we just kind of have our thumb out and driving by the church just holding it out and see if we can jump in for just a little bit, and there's really no commitment. Give your children a healthy respect for the church. There would be some who would say, well, you know, I don't like this church, so I'm going to go over to a house church. And you know what? There is a house church in Scripture, in Acts and in Romans. But it's a lot different than we do house churches. That was a place where the church went to meet. We do it because we don't like the church, and so we're going to go over here. And most of the time, it's not biblical, and you're in sin if you do it. Yes, that's what I said. You can't just go do it on your own. Because a biblical church has order and framework. You've got to have a healthy, strong respect for the church. Fathers and mothers, I would encourage you to do that. If you can give them that, where there's the body of Christ, and you're not just training and raising your children up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord, instruction of the Lord, and there's this body of Christ aspect, and you're walking with others, and you're seeking the Lord, and you're running the race with them, and yes, you have your pitfalls, but they're there to help you stand up and keep going, and you're, you're fighting against sin together. That is really, really good. Very, very healthy. And if that happens, you have a healthy church family. And typically, then you have a healthy 
physical family, social family, because there's a good example with which you're to mirror. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, oh Lord, we thank you that you have set these things in order for us. You've not set us by ourselves. You've given us framework. You've given us the gospel. You've, you've instituted roles that will keep us on the path and running the race well. And Father, this path is narrow and it is, it is all too often lonely. Most often times, there's just few along that path. And, and within sight, there's a much broader path with many on it and laughing and giggling and fun and merry. And this is, this is difficult. And yet you've given us these things that we might hold well to this because the track you have us on is the true track, the one that finishes, the one that crosses the line, the one that has been ordained by you that we must run we are to see God. So Father, I thank you for discipline. I thank you, Lord, for the institution of it, for giving us grace by instruction of Scripture to how to discipline ourselves privately and hold one another accountable. And, and yet, Lord, if, that, if there is sin that becomes entrenched to the point of unrepentance in our lives, you've given us an order and a framework by which we can fight it through your bride, the church. Father, I would pray that we would not have to go through that order. We're willing to, if necessary, but my prayer would be that as we would preach the word, that you would give us grace to do so faithfully, and that the word would go forth, Nuthesia, it would instruct, it would change it would do the work you have accomplished and allow us, Father, allow us to be able to walk this path faithfully together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of a new week that faces us and the opportunity of a new year that is right around the corner. And these are great opportunities to, to knuckle down, to tighten the belt, cinch the straps as necessary to, to discipline the loose areas and, and walk well, to run well this race of life. Father, thank you for the biblical instruction this morning. I simply plead, Father, that your promise would be fulfilled and that your word would not go forth without accomplishing its purpose. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.